sometimes you know uh, i'm not qualified to say much about the western church but what my uh, observations and you know much uh, experience that sometimes you know the west christianity you know is taken very much for granted you know and uh, when there is a uh, you know not that kind of uh, difficulty they go through and i think you know the western church needs to be i think there are challenges to the western church as well and they're going through that but not particularly you know as uh, uh, especially you know the living in the minority context you know what of the challenges we face that so i think from that view point the pakistani church can contribute a lot and help you know the, the western church you know to understand particularly you know the cross aspect of cross is important it's attached to our christian identity and our christian life and uh, sometimes i call it you know we need to adopt it as a lifestyle you know living in particularly in our con- uh, sort of a context where we live that so cross is a sort of a lifestyle that we adopt it and i think from that uh, viewpoint and angle the pakistani church can uh, contribute to the western church My name is Angel Torero. I want to welcome you to On Mission with Chris Wright, a podcast produced by Langham Partnership. Visit langham.org to learn more about Langham. What can Christians in Indiana learn from Christians in Indonesia? How can church leaders in Mumbai equip pastors in Miami, which is where I live and serve? On this podcast, we listen in on conversations between Chris Wright and church leaders in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, where my family has their roots. We hope you discover how much wisdom the church in the West has to gain from their sisters and brothers in villages and towns around the world. This podcast is brought to you by the Langham Partnership, a ministry founded by John Stott, to equip church leaders in the majority world. Visit langham.org to learn more about Langham and explore more resources from global church leaders. Our host is Dr. Christopher J.H. Wright, known to many as Chris Wright, a respected theologian and award-winning author of more than 30 books, including critically acclaimed The Mission of God, Unlocking the Bible's Grand Narrative. When he's not writing books, Chris serves as global ambassador and ministry director for Langham. Today, we head to Pakistan, home to 220 million people and more than 70 languages. We'll meet Kesar Julius, a Pakistani Christian and theological leader trained with Langham support who lives in the ancient city of Lahore, where he now leads a seminary and heads up Langham's pastor training for Pakistan. What is it like to live out your faith boldly in a Muslim majority region where Christ followers often face pressure? I think this conversation will surprise you and encourage your heart about how God is at work in Pakistan. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to On Mission with me, Chris Wright. And where are we headed to today? Well, we're going again to Asia. and this time to the country of Pakistan and to the ancient and very beautiful city of Lahore where my guest is Dr. Kasser Julius so welcome to you Kasser thank you Kasser Julius uh, is one of our Langham scholars he did his phd in melbourne australia and we'll tell you a little bit about that later and he's also now the national coordinator country coordinator for the Langham preaching program in Pakistan, which is extensive, 
and he's the director of the Open Theological Seminary, and indeed he's had that post for somewhat over 20 years now. So it's good to talk to you, Kasser, and uh, I think the first time we met, if I remember, was in 2004, when I came to Pakistan, when we were basically launching the Langham Preaching Program in Multan, and uh, you and I had a, a chat then, and we got to know each other, isn't that right? That's true, very, very true, you know, yeah, yeah Chris. I, I do remember, you know, my time, you know, when we met first time there, mm. yeah. <clears throat> That was great. So uh, let's uh, let's hear a little bit about yourself and your background. And I'm just wondering, uh, because you're from Pakistan, that when you're in the West and visiting people over here, do you sometimes meet people who say, oh, uh, you're Pakistani, you, you must be Muslim. How come you're a Christian? Yeah, you know, uh, Pakistan, of course, you know, predominantly a Muslim country, but uh, there is a lot of Christians uh, in Pakistan and uh, uh, I'd say about 4 million Christians and church is not underground. Church is very visible in Pakistan. And uh, I, I uh, born in a, in, a, in a Christian family and my, and my dad served as a pastor in the Presbyterian church for 40 years. He got retired in 2013. Mm-hmm. But I came to know the Lord through the ministry of the Campus Crusade for Christ when I was a university student Mm -hmm. and they used to come to the different campuses and to spot the Christian students. And I was uh, in a public university there and uh, hardly they could spot, you know, the Christian students. I was the only Christian in my class. So somehow, you know, they invited me to their Bible study group. And uh, then I started going to their Bible studies. And that was the time, you know, really I got to know the Lord personally and uh, I wanted to become actually economist because I was doing the uh, economics in the university but uh, God you know has his own plans and uh, then they invited me to come for uh, uh, like a new life training center that is just a one month training for which I went there that was really a life-changing experience and at that time, really, I felt that God is calling me. So, so slowly, you know, I listened to the Lord. And then finally, I uh, moved to the ministry. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of a, yeah. my, my little, you know, story. Uh, that's right. So, so your father was a pastor before you. Uh, did mm-hmm. he come from a Christian family himself? Or was did he I come from uh, an Islamic our- background? Uh, our family, you know, history is like back, go back to three, four generations. What I heard from my dad, you know, probably his granddad, you know, he came to Christ from a Hindu background, I think. So that would have probably then been originally while what is now Pakistan would have been part of India, if, it, if you're going back some no, generations. That, um, yeah, yeah, it's before the partition. That's yeah, true. Yes. Yeah. So that's that's remarkable. Lahore is, uh, a, a, as I said, a very ancient city there in in, uh, in the Punjab region. Punjab being a state which is a province now of Pakistan, but also is right across the border into that's India true. as well. As in, it? it was where the partition was perhaps most costly. That's uh, true. In yeah. 1947. So let's let's talk a little bit then about uh, about your country of of Pakistan. Um, as I said, in, in many ways, it's a very ancient culture, but a relatively young state as such, uh, going back to 1947. 
and the partition, which actually makes it the same age as me. I, I often like to say that uh, I'm the <laughs> same age as, as India and Pakistan because I was born in the same year that uh, that the partition happened from the old British India, the, the British Raj in India. And of course, that origin of the country was born in many ways in a great deal of hostility, wasn't it? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that and if that's still there and, and, you know, the relationships between Pakistan and India? Because pretty well everybody knows that it's it's not a very sweet relationship most yes, of the time. Yes. Unfortunately, you know, we are uh, surrounded by not a good neighbours in that sense. We have not good relations with like on the eastern border border with, you know, with India and then our western borders with uh, Afghanistan and little bit we share with Iran mm -hmm. and with China. I think the only relation, good relationship we have with China, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and with the rest of the three countries, our neighboring countries, you know, the situation is quite tense and especially mm -hmm. with India. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, because of that partition and particularly in Punjab, you know, when I read the story of the partition, that is really horrible in that way because 2.5 million people on both sides, you know, somehow were murdered and, you know, killed. And uh, that is a very painful story. Yes, it's uh, just putting Pakistan on the map for people. It's, uh, as you say, it's uh, got India to the east and Iran to the west and Afghanistan to the northwest and then China up at the far north. And it's actually a, a, a sizable country. I was just, I always like to check the size of nations to help people give, get a sense of the feel. Um, uh, it's about the same size geographically as Turkey, about mm. twice the size of California and roughly the same size as Queensland in Australia. So that's mm. about the, the geographical size. But Population-wise, of course, it's huge. I, I think um, somewhere between 200 and 300 million, is that correct? But Yeah, more than 200 million. Uh, yeah. yeah, which is apparently the fifth most populous nation in the world uh, after That's China, true. India, USA and Indonesia. And uh, what many people may not be aware of in terms of um, Islam is because obviously it's 95% Islam, that it's the second most populous Islamic country in the world mm -hmm. after after Indonesia. Mm -hmm. And yet, as you were telling us, uh, there are about 4 million Christians, only 2% of the population, but 2% yes. of a large population means a lot of people, about, about 4 million people. Yeah. And uh, sometimes people don't have much understanding about the state of the church. Mm -hmm. Church is very, and we constitutionally, we have the right to practice our faith. Yeah. And we do it, you know, with uh, with great freedom. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's that's remarkable, uh, particularly since there's a great deal of pressure uh, east of your borders in India now increasingly on, on Christians there, uh, where, yeah, again, constitutionally they live with freedom of religion, but in practical terms it's, it's often very difficult, yeah. um, as indeed we'll come to in a minute, uh, talking about the you know, the pressure that Christians also still face in Pakistan, even though uh, technically they are free. But uh, at the same time, it's your country and uh, yeah. it's your culture. So tell us a little bit about, you know, what what you love, what what you really enjoy about Pakistan itself and your own country and culture. I think our culture is very communal, Chris. Uh, uh, community, you know, is sort of the center of our culture. 
community relationship, family bonds, you know, and not only the immediate family, but the extended family as well. Mm -hmm. So this is what really I love it. And uh, recently um, I went to my dad's home where all our, uh, you know, the siblings and their children, you know, were together. And uh, we really, you know, uh, sometimes uh, when we don't meet, you know, like in a uh, one week or two weeks, you know, we really miss one another. Yeah. Because uh, the Pakistani culture is, you know, the people live in the extended families, you know, live together. So that is uh, very, you know, kind of, uh, of course, there are, when we live in a joint family system, there are problems as well. Mm -hmm. But uh, on the other side, you know, this is a really a communal culture. And um, the other thing is that it's very hospitable. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, you have traveled to Pakistan as well. And yes, oh yes, I've enjoyed Pakistani <laughs> hospitality on several occasions, it's been great. Uh, so these are some of you know the strengths of our culture uh, which I cherish as well. And that community sense uh, travels because certainly when one thinks of the uh, Pakistani community here in Britain, that's one of the things that's very, very strong is the family culture and family loyalties and um, protection of, of people and so on. So it's, uh, it's obviously a cultural trait. Uh, that and the food, I suppose, you also would uh, want to no, know. That's true. You know, that's uh, the third thing, if you like to, you know, uh, add that, that is the food as well. And especially Lahore, you know, yeah. Lahore is full of restaurants. And uh, and the culture of Lahore is, you know, people, especially in the evening, they like to go out and the restaurants and every type of restaurant you can find in Lahore, mm. different types, Chinese and Turkish and Pakistanis and English food and whatever, you know, you like that. Uh, Lahore is the best place for food, you know. <laughs> well, I shall bear that in mind. Um, yeah. the, the last time I was there, I think I was only there a few days, so I, I had good food, but I wasn't. Um, it wasn't there long enough to sample all of those. <laughs> One thing we discovered here is that, of course, in, in Britain, uh, Indian restaurants are very popular and Indian food is very popular. But I discovered that a lot of so-called Indian restaurants are actually owned and run by Pakistanis. <laughs> <laughs> Like. <laughs> <laughs> but they prefer to call them Indian because they know that's what people will come in and want. And uh, and so, I, yeah, in fact, there was one just, just down the end of our street. It was uh, what we thought was Indian restaurant until I asked him one day where he came from. He said, oh, I said, I'm from Pakistan. <laughs> Running an Indian restaurant. So there we are. That's great. One of the uh, uh, things that Langham has managed to help to uh, initiate over these last years was the South Asia Bible Commentary. Yeah. Uh, which you'll be aware of, I'm sure, um, which involves scholars from uh, India and Pakistan and Sri Lanka and I think one or two from Nepal as well yeah. um, in English. And the Hindi one has just come out, which is wonderful. I yeah. gather, I think work is happening on an Urdu translation of that commentary. Are, are you aware of that? Is, is yes, that yes, I'm very much, you're very much aware of that. It's being, uh, the translation is being done by MIK, Masihi Shahid Khanan. It's a Christian publishing house in Lahore. And I think they are progressing because uh, the general manager of the MIK, uh, Dr. Peter Callum, is a good friend of mine. And also I serve on their board as well. So I'm, I'm aware of that project. Yeah. That's good. So that would be the, the South Asia, the one volume commentary on the whole Bible entirely by South Asian scholars. Uh, and to have that available in Urdu would be, I think, an enormous gift and blessing for the uh, churches yeah. of Pakistan, wouldn't it? So. Uh, we look That's forward to that because, being. Yeah, we have a very, you know, the less material, you know, the Christian literature in our Urdu language. So I think it's be a very good resource for the, for the yes. uh, 
teachers and from pastors and for theological educators as well. Let's talk a little bit more about the church uh, in Pakistan, if we could, um, uh, Kasser, because as you say, the church is visible. And that, to me, actually, that's one of the amazing things that when I, on the one hand, here in Britain, where I'm speaking from, we often hear about and pray for Christians who are persecuted around the world. And obviously, we know that there have been bombings of Christian churches in Pakistan, uh, that life can be very difficult, especially for poorer uh, Christians in Pakistan. Uh, there's the issue of the blasphemy laws, which I know that you have studied. Uh, so we, we hear all of that. And yet when I go to Pakistan, you know, I, I visit big churches. I, you know, I see large communities and, uh, and so on. It's visible. And yet at the same time, there's a great deal of persecution and suffering. So how does that all fit together? What is the, how do Christians in Pakistan live their daily lives in generally in, in fear of persecution or just going about their everyday life and sometimes having these events happening that are so scary? Yeah, Chris, you know, it's uh, generally, you know, the life as a minority in Pakistan sometimes, you know, hard. Uh, but, you know, uh, I won't say that, you know, the persecution, you know, is, is everywhere. It's, it has different levels. Like discrimination, I would say it's everywhere because uh, uh, as a minority, you face discrimination. But uh, the countryside uh, where the Christians are very poor and generally, you know, the Christian community is poor. And uh, because of that, that's uh, another reason, you know, they are oppressed and uh, they have less opportunity to groom in, the, in, in that kind of, a, you know, the environment. Mm. And uh, I'm in this state, you know, uh, is very much in what the constitution says is our right. But on, unfortunately, you know, uh, when it comes to the implementation or application of the law and, the con- and you know, the constitution, uh, that is questionable. Mm. And, uh, and because of that, you know, there are some uh, terrible, you know, kind of incidents happened in the past, and particularly, you know, with the Christians and uh, but I won't say that uh, it's uh, happening everywhere. Sometimes, you know, it happens in the one part of the country. Uh, I can't say that it's happening everywhere. Mm-hmm. So sometimes, you know, through the media, sometimes they're projected in that way. But uh, I think, you know, uh, the government, uh, sometimes, you know, they try their best, you know, to provide the protection. But sometimes, you know, it's completely out of the control of the government because it comes to the community. Yeah. And when, you know, and the people are very, you know, tend to take the law into their hands. Mm. And when, you know, these kind of things, you know, uh, happen, there's more on community-based things. And uh, that's why uh, sometimes, you know, it's difficult. When you use the word discrimination, uh, are you meaning particularly in things like employment? Yeah, employment is one of them, you know, as you apply, and especially, you know, for uh, like in the public sector. Uh, right? Yeah. I know many, many, many like uh, uh, very uh, good young Christians, you know, they face these kind of things and they, they are very frustrated and they feel yeah. that they are not given, you know, the equal opportunity. Uh, and this would be because presumably uh, most Christians will have names that immediately identify them as Christian uh, from Muslim names. That would be 
make it very easy, presumably, for such discrimination to happen. Would that be so? Yeah, it's, uh, sometimes, you know, with names and sometimes you have to, you know, to reveal your, uh, you know, your religion. And uh, in the, I think the, in the 90s, I do remember I was part of that, uh, uh, you know, movement. Uh, I was a student in my university because at that time, government was uh, uh, just uh, bringing a new law that, that our national ID card, national identity card, they wanted to put, you know, a box for the religion, you know, because a national identity card is a basic document for everything, wherever you go for your bank account, for your, for your employment, you have to produce that. Mm. And uh, at the time, you know, the uh, minority, especially the Christian community, I remember I was very much part of that movement that we resisted that this is going to, you know, escalate the discrimination because you can easily can be recognized. Yeah. So at the time, thank God, you know, that movement really uh, got its uh, objective and we forced the government, you know, to step back and, you know, to take that law back. Good. But there are uh, like uh, our passport, uh, our, you know, the international for traveling, there is a, a, a kind of a room for the religion. And my, my passport is very clearly written on Christian. Yeah. And it happens, you know, there are ways, you know, that people can be identified. And, and that's fine. And I think me as a Christian, I feel that and uh, we should not, you know, uh, like, you know, hide our identity as a Christian because that's, uh, or sometimes, you know, unless the people understand their Christian identity, it sometimes is hard for them. The people who really understand their Christian identity, that's fine. They're, mm. They really suffer sometimes for their identity. And, uh, I think the fact that you have personally been very willing, as you say, not to hide as a Christian uh, is evident in what you did for your PhD dissertation, which, as I said, was to study the, the blasphemy laws of Pakistan. And if I just read out the title of your dissertation, it was Ahmadi and Christian Sociopolitical Responses to Pakistan's Blasphemy Laws, which has been published as a Langham monograph uh, as your dissertation. Did that get you into any kind of trouble, or was it simply an academic exercise that has not been noticed? It's a very sensitive subject, but I did it you know, from a very academic viewpoint and... Uh, that's, that's how, you know, I just analyzed academically, you know, yeah. the, uh, the problems, you know, are causing in the community. And there are many, you know, like the human rights groups, you know, who have done a lot of uh, work on that. And uh, of course, it's, uh, uh, it is one of the sensitive areas, you know, in Pakistan to talk mm -hmm. about that. Because these laws are, of course, you know, are abused. It, it, it abused, you know, they got abused a lot in the past. Thank God, you know, slowly, you know, I think now uh, government is trying to bring some kind of uh, uh, laws, you know, where they can prevent, you know, the misuse of that. But still, you know, as I say that uh, it's more related to the community, you know, yeah. because anybody can, you know, accuse you. you know, so. Yeah, I was going to say, just for those who might not know what well, what's meant by these blasphemy laws, can you just explain very quickly what the laws are and what it can mean for Christians in a village or a town when somebody makes that kind of accusation? What actually happens? Yeah, you know, it's uh, uh, like uh, it's more like on the you know if some somebody says uh, 
abusive language or you know derogatory words uh, against the quran or the prophet of islam then you know of course uh, for this this is considered as the blasphemy you know mm-hmm. and it's only for the um, majority religion islam it's not for the other religion so the law says that but when it comes to the application of course you know and it's very sensitive area mm-hmm. because people don't you know wait for you know uh, like the you know the court decides or the yeah. you know who and the and the investigation you know happens and, and the investigative teams you know they should decide or the police people actually take very quickly you know uh, their this law into their hands and yeah. they they i mean they become you know sort of the accusers and they they took all you know things into their hands so that's that's a very sensitive thing yeah. and uh, in that way this law can easily be you know can yeah. be misused and the people who would suffer that would often not be in a position financially or otherwise to have legal representation or any sort of defense uh, so presumably people can be very vulnerable yes, uh, very in vulnerable. that way That's yeah. True. yeah so let's think then about langham preaching in Pakistan, if we could, for a while, because as I said earlier on, that's where you and I first met, was in 2004 in Multan, when Langham Preaching got launched and uh, has, has grown since then. Let's, let's begin by asking a question. Why, why do you think preaching, preaching the Bible, is important for a church which is living under persecution? Yeah, of course, you know, it's, uh, as you know, sometimes the church, you know, goes uh, through the difficult time and uh, they're living in such an environment. But unfortunately, yeah, there is a huge influence of uh, prosperity gospel in Pakistan, which is coming uh-huh. from the West and from Africa mm-hmm. as well. And I think which is, uh, uh, to me, I personally feel that it's, it's really a, a danger to the church in Pakistan. Because what the theology is taught in the prosperity gospel and their experience is completely different, is completely mm-hmm. contradictory. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, when the people hear, you know, this kind of theology and preaching that, you know, you believe in God, you, Christ, all your problems will be solved and you will be financially and economically prosper and all that. But their experience is completely opposite. So when, you know, their experience is completely opposite, so their faith, you know, never grows, actually. It's a very superficial kind of faith. And I always, you know, preach this very boldly in Pakistan and say that the church needs to realize that. That our church seems, you know, uh, like uh, one mile long, but mm. how much the deep is maybe, you know, less than an inch, you know, yeah. the church in that way. So yeah. that's why gospel is so important that, you know, church needs to be strengthened in this context. Because when I look at, you know, the church history and the history of the Christian church in Pakistan, we claim that, you know, our roots go back to the first century when, you know, the St. Um, uh, Thomas, you know, came to first to North India, what the tradition says, and then went to the South India. Mm-hmm. So, but uh, the present church, you know, cannot trace, you know, its continuity, you know, to that. Because by the 12th century and some some of the historian, church historians say that it's like up to 14th century, you know, church completely uh, eliminated from the northern part of India, now Pakistan is. Mm. 
So the, the present church in Pakistan is the product of the missionary movement started from the West in the 19th and 20th century. So it's just, you can say that it's a 200 years old Christianity in this part of the world. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, one of the, the questions come to my mind that, you know, where that church gone, you know, why that church, you know, couldn't exist. And there are different, you know, the reasons and historians pose that. But uh, one thing is very clear, you know, that that church, you know, slowly got weak. And when the real persecution and difficult, you know, situation started, that church couldn't survive that. Mm-hmm. So this question comes for this present church as well. If, you know, if really the persecutions, you know, come to that level, you know, it's very hard for the, you know, the present church to exist. So that is why, you know, it needs to be strengthened and, you know, and with the, um, with the good biblical preaching, with a really good understanding of, of the gospel, but what the gospel is, so they need to understand that. So I think it's very, very, very important and Langham preaching is really doing a good job. Yeah. Well, that's great to hear because that's certainly what we believe. It's what John Stott believed, that it would be the word of God that strengthens the church of God uh, to grow in not only just in in maturity, but also in resilience and and courage and strength to stand. So you are a Bible preacher and uh, teacher, and you lead the Langham Preaching Program. Are there any particular parts of the Bible which you think are most relevant to a church under persecution? I think, the, of course, you know, the whole Bible needs to be preached, you know, in that. Well, that's but, true. Uh, we need to preach the whole Bible. Amen <laughs> to that. I agree. That's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, you know, uh, I recently, I, I forgot to tell you that I just, I think two days ago, I finished your book, Let the Gospels Preach the Gospel. And that's very fascinating. And I think gospel part is very, very important because, that helps, you know, to understand our Lord, you know, mm-hmm. his teaching and uh, and our calling, you know, to come follow me. And I think uh, uh, in the New Testament, you know, the gospel part is very important. And in language preaching, and particularly in level two, uh, we have, you know, reversed, you know, normally in the level two, maybe in other parts of the world, they do, you know, the Old Testament genre, but we do here is the New Testament genre. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, we can't do, you know, the every genre of the New Testament in just a three, four days workshop. But our focus mainly, you know, on the Gospels. Mm. And we really want, because also the other interesting reason is that uh, they are in a story form. And of course, our culture is very much oral. Mm. And people are really, when uh, the story of the Gospel is told to them and expound properly, and I think they really love it to hear. And uh, the one thing is very important that that helps us to understand, you know, the life of our Lord, you know, Mm. that was not uh, um, the way, you know, he came to this world and what he did and what sort of the life he had. And that he, the Lord Jesus, went through suffering as well. uh, well. So there's a tremendous strength in in his personal story, isn't there, for those who are suffering. As the New Testament says, if we follow the one who suffered for us, we will also suffer. Yeah. And then, you know, we need to understand, you know, what is our cross. And in our part of the world, probably this is, you know, our cross. And if the people really understand it and they're willing to uh, take their cross. And I think this is very, very important 
if your church needs to be strengthened. So that's why the Langham preaching, I think, has been playing a tremendous role in promoting the biblical preaching, you know, to focus what the Bible says. When you say that the cross is so central and that people need to both carry the cross and know the cross, have you found that to be powerful in some of the situations where, you know, atrocities have been committed or a church has been bombed, uh, that has it been the case that believers have been able to walk the way of the cross in the way they've responded to that and to those who have perpetrated such things? That's very true. I just, uh, uh, I think, uh, as I told you, that the October and November month are the month is of the conventions. And I went to the All Saints Church in Peshawar, which was, you know, uh, bond, uh, there was a suicide attacks in 2013 and almost, you know, 100 people were killed and uh, more than 200 people were uh, just injured as they came out of the church, you know, after the Sunday service. And uh, this time, you know, they were remembering of the martyrs and all their, you know, uh, their family members, you know, who lost their loved ones in that, you know, atrocity. They were there. And after I preached that, I met to them and a few of them I really know very well because one of our coordinators based in Peshawar, he was also killed, his, uh, his wife and his young daughter you know the three family members were killed and only one survivor from that family mm-hmm. so when i uh, met after the service with these you know i was they were so you know calm and they were so joyful in, in the same church you know where they went through that experience mm-hmm. and their testimonies were so alive and so powerful that you know how of course they went to that experience but that didn't stop them coming to church yeah. and when i asked them you know how did how did it come, you know, who, you know, really strengthened you? And they, they were saying, you know, it's because of their Christian faith and their Lord and their personal experience they have gone. And uh, one of the ladies, you know, who lost uh, probably three, four members of the family, she was saying that right the next Sunday, you know, the one Sunday this atrocity happened, the next Sunday the church was not closed. They opened the church and she went to the church and said, nobody, nothing can stop us, you know. You know, going to the church. That's amazing. Yeah. So. And uh, if they go to that church, they will hear the Bible being preached. That that that's true. You know that that's you know this is how you know they got revived and they got restored, mm. and I think is only because of um, the gospel. Yeah. This uh, podcast series is called On Mission, and I just wonder in what sense would you say that Langham preaching is actually mission in the sense that somebody might say, yes, but this is all happening within the church, isn't it? I mean, mission should be something that's happening outside the doors of the church. So do you see Langham preaching as, as, a, as a missional task? That's very true. You know, the, it's uh, one of the responsibilities, you know, of the Pakistani church to understand, you know, this is their responsibility, you know, to preach the gospel, share their, you know, uh, their faith with in Pakistan, because sometimes, you know, when it comes to missions or missionary, it always comes to the foreign, you know, mm. the churches like, you know, from the West and from the US. But I think now the Pakistani church, you know, started realizing that it is their responsibility. So I think the preaching, you know, for that mission work plays an integral part. So in mm. that way, you know, Langham preaching 
is playing a, a very significant role in Pakistan. That's wonderful. Let's move on to your other main role, and I suppose this probably is your real day job in the sense that this is what you're, in a sense, uh, really um, responsible for, which is that you are the director of the Open Theological Seminary, uh, which is largely by theological education by extension. And I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about the origins of that um, movement, that organization, and how it came about, and, and what exactly it's doing. I think uh, in the early 70s, uh, uh, this idea, you know, came from the Latin America, you know, the theological education by extension. And, you know, the when I read the history, you know, the main idea was, you know, rather the people, you know, come to the seminary, seminary should go to the people. Because in some parts of the world, and particularly in the Latin America, what their experience was is it's very hard for the people to come to the seminary for three or four years in a residential mm-hmm. program. And I think when it come, uh, came to Pakistan, at the time in a residential theological institution is called GTS, Kuchramala Theological Seminary. And uh, they you know, introduced this, you know, if some suppose in Pakistan, the residential training is closed and no possibility for training the clergy through the residential model, uh, what is the other option? So at that time, it's strongly realized by the management and other faculty members, yes, of course, you know, this is a good idea and we can train, you know, the clergy uh, through this model. But later on, the residential model, you know, there were people, the management, they said, no, they would stick to that and they are going to train you in the clergy to this model. And then uh, the idea came up, you know, okay, uh, the residential uh, training model is more for the clergy. And what about the lady? There is a 99%, you know, is the lady and there is no proper, you know, the program for their training. Mm. So we are focusing just the one person, less than a one person. And that's right. Yeah. And it's also important. So then it got a separate entity and uh, it used to be called a PAC-T, Pakistan Committee for Theological Education by Extension. That's right. I remember that. PAC-T, yes. Yeah. Uh, Pakistan <laughs> Theological Education by Extension, uh, PAC-T, yeah, yes. That's true. And, uh, you know, then uh, it, it was strongly uh, realized that you know, it doesn't make sense, you know, when we go to the people and say, you know, PAC-T, they say, what, what PAC-T is? Yes. So, because we have the open university in Pakistan and they, you know, do in the uh, secular education, they provide, you know, in the, with the same model. So, the open, you know, the idea came from the open university and we said yeah. we are doing the same thing, but we are doing in a theological circle. So, why don't it's uh, open theological yeah. seminary? So, this is how, you know, this idea came up. Yeah. And I think, if I'm right, was it uh, some of the pioneering work of that was done by Tim Green? Is that right? It's not the Tim Green was not the pioneers, but he contributed a lot. He was my predecessor. He served in Pakistan for 15 years. Mm -hmm. But before that, uh, you know, there were uh, early missionaries like from uh, different mission organizations, from the team mission, from SIM, from Intercer. Um, but they, this idea you know, started in the residential theological seminary, yeah. and then it got separated. And Tim Green also, you know, played a very significant role in that. Mm-hmm. I worked with him for four years. Yes, friend. Yeah. indeed. 
and then you took over in 1999. <laughs> believers in the world. So tell us a bit about those students. Who, who are your students then? Uh, what kind of context do they come from? And, you know, approximately how many are there? Uh, you know, there are nearly 10,000 students, you know, enrolled in the Open Theological. 10,000? The biggest, you know, uh, theological program in Pakistan. I'm sure it and is. And sometimes, you know, the people, when it, they hear, you know, the theological education by extension, they think it's by correspondence or it's a distance learning. We don't think it is this way. We call it a context-based learning, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's not uh, distance or, you know, it's not correspondence completely. It's a context-based because students have to meet, you know, once a week and they meet in their own local area where they can conveniently meet in a church, in a community hall, in a house, because the class size is not big. It's like from mm -hmm. five to 15 members of the class. So they can easily you know, meet wherever they like. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, it's in the context, we provide you know, the material and along with the material or the course books, we provide the tutor manual as well. So the tutors are not the lecturers. They don't have to prepare their own material. They're not the professor. They are the facilitators. Mm -hmm. So they have to facilitate because the material uh, has been prepared by the scholars. And even the tutors, you know, they are not very highly qualified. You know, they can easily, you know, facilitate the classes mm -hmm. because uh, the methods are, are very different yeah. because uh, the first part is, you know, the self-study. They have to study, you know, the material, and then they come to a one and a half hour class. Once a week. Once a week, yeah. Mm -hmm. So they have to discuss the material. So learning not only comes from the tutor, from the book, but from the student. They reflect for, for a very deep discussion. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, what they learn, you know, they have go back to, you know, their context and to apply it. So mm -hmm. we call it the three methods, you know, head heart and hand mm -hmm. so the application part is is really important mm -hmm. and then every week you know this uh, cycle is repeated and each course is comprising of 10 weeks mm -hmm. so when they finish it you know there is a proper assessments and even you know we we are very concerned you know not only about their cognitive part they learn the, mm -hmm. they get some information but also you know many much how much the skills they have acquired and what life has changed in the transformation part. So we, our graduate profile is very much, you know, cognitive skills and transformative, you know, that's, that's the key part that, you know, they become the good disciples of Christ, you know, they yeah. follow Christ in their life. So if their lives are not transformed, then it's nothing. That's amazing. Yes, the breadth is, is really astounding. And so you have 10,000 altogether and approximately how many of those would be at, let's say, the, the bachelor's level? Because that would be sort of equivalent to what somebody would do if they were going to a campus-based seminary. Yeah, that's, we have, I think, currently we are nearly about uh, 100 plus or, mm -hmm. you know, the bachelor level. Mm -hmm. And master level, we have a cohort, like, you know, cohort one, we have 32 students and then cohort two, like, uh, 37. Yeah. And But uh, the majority of the students, you know, on the discipleship and setup. 
level. Yes, and but discipleship and certificate is very important because it, it is important for, as one might say, for ordinary Christians to know their faith. Uh, and especially and, and in the rural be, areas, yeah, in yeah. the countryside, you know, when they have very less opportunity for learning. So yeah. they understand their identity in Christ mm. and that gives them a sense and also a, a gives them a confidence to live in that kind of environment, you know, when they face a lot of sort of yeah. discrimination. Well, exactly. So it's, it's in a sense, these are two very complementary works that you're involved with through Langham Preaching, uh, which is enabling pastors and leaders in those very rural situations to strengthen believers through the preaching of the word, and then through the Open Theological Seminary's work at, at the discipleship and certificate level by enabling them to strengthen themselves, as it were, through personal study and reading and uh, and doing those workbooks and learning their faith so that they actually know what, they, what their identity is in Christ. Um, and that's, that's so important. Yeah. That's so you, you mentioned already one other seminary in, uh, in Pakistan, Gujranwala. What other seminaries are there? Because obviously some of them are very old and some of them are new, but I, I know there are a number of what we yeah. might call traditional seminaries as well as the Open Theological Seminary. Yeah, there are, you know, like uh, denominational, you know, theological colleges like the Pentecostal Church, uh, mm -hmm. gospel assemblies, you know, Bible college they have, the Brethren Church, they have their own institution. And then, in, you know, in the north, like ZBS, Zarper Bible Seminary. Mm -hmm. And they also, you know, sort of like the interdenominationally. But these days, you know, in the Church of Pakistan, they have their own seminary in Karachi and in Lahore yeah. as well. So yeah. they, they have, you know, there are many uh, theological institutions. I mean, I think it's important for people to realize that, you know, even in a country like Pakistan, there is such a thing as a Christian university. Uh, no, it's a very big university. Uh, as a university uh, with a theology department um, and, and that there are, you know, solid Christian teaching and theological education going on there. So th these are important things for people to remember when yes. they pray for the country. Yes. So uh, we always love to um, say to those we have on these conversations, you yourself have, uh, well, you've lived in the West in the sense of doing your PhD in, in Melbourne. You've obviously visited other countries in the States and Britain and so on. In what ways do you think the Church of Pakistan can be a, a blessing uh, to the global church and perhaps particularly to the, the church in the West? Yeah, you know, sometimes, you know, uh, I'm not qualified to say much about the Western church, but what my uh, observations and, you know, much uh, experience that sometimes, you know, the West Christianity, you know, is taken very much for granted, you know. And uh, when there is, uh, you know, not that kind of uh, difficulty to go through. And I think, you know, the Western church needs to realize, I think there are challenges to the Western church as well, and they're going through that. But not particularly, you know, as uh, uh, the especially, you know, the living in the minority context, you know, what are the challenges we face that. So I think from that viewpoint, the Pakistani church can contribute a lot and help, you know, the, the Western church, you know, to understand, particularly, you know, the cross aspect of cross is important. It's attached to our Christian identity and our Christian life. And uh, sometimes I call it, you know, we need to adopt it as a lifestyle, you know, living in particularly in our con uh, sort of a context where we live that. So cross is a sort of lifestyle if we adopt it. And I think from that uh, viewpoint and angle, the Pakistani church can 
contribute to the Western Church. To live with the cross as our lifestyle. Lifestyle. Yeah. That, I think, is something that, well, speaking for myself, uh, living in the pretty comfortable West, uh, we need to hear because it doesn't doesn't come naturally. And when certainly when people here in Britain sometimes complain about you know opposition to Christians or what they call persecution <laughs> uh, of Christians in the workplace and so on, I say, look, you know, the fact that we as Christians have had a fairly comfortable uh, lifestyle in the West for the last, let's say, couple of hundred years or whatever it's been, is like a blip in Christian history. Because for the majority of Christians, for most of church history, they have lived as a minority community um, with, with, with suffering and persecution. And, and so believers like yourself in Pakistan, of course, in many, many other countries, have so much to teach us because this is our normality. This is what normal Christian life is here. <laughs> um, it's, it's to be a minority and to expect suffering and persecution and to have the cross as one's lifestyle. That's, that's really very powerful. Well, I've been talking with uh, Dr. Kasser Julius, uh, and our time is just about up, but it's been great to talk with you, Kasser, and the Lord bless you and your wife and son and daughter uh, and all that you're doing there for the kingdom of God in Pakistan. Thank you for talking to us. Thank you, Chris. It was really wonderful to talk to you. Bless you. Bless you. A big thank you to Chris and Kesser for this wonderful conversation. What a blessing to learn a bit about Pakistan from a brother in Christ who loves his culture, loves God's word, and wants to build bridges between the two. You can learn more about how Langham equips leaders around the world at langham.org, and you can benefit from their reflections on following Jesus within their cultures at voices.langham.org. Please join us next week. Again, I'm Angel Torero, and thank you for joining me for On Mission with Chris Wright, a podcast produced by Langham Partnership. Visit langham.org to discover how they multiply and equip leaders around the world. If you enjoyed today's conversation, will you let us know by giving us a review and sharing this with a friend? And then join me for future episodes where we'll be talking to leaders in Zambia, Palestine, Kenya, Brazil, and beyond. We look forward to having you join for our next episode of On Mission with Chris Wright. In the meantime, God bless. God bless.